You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Willamette Christian Church in Westland, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at willamette.cc or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. We are going to jump into the series that we are calling Entrusted. This is our series during the month of November. If you missed last week, no worries. You picked a great Sunday as we jump in. And and the big idea behind this series is that God is showing us it's not just believing in God, but it's also living for God. Even as I stand on that front row over there and I'm I'm just thinking about, uh, as I'm singing, I'm like, God, I I want this to be so real all the way through my life. I don't want to just believe in you. I I want to glorify you. I want to honor you. I want to figure this out. And most of us in this room, you showed up today for one reason or another. But I think at the the end of the day, all of us are saying, man, I may not have this all figured out, but God, I, I desire to take another step towards you. And so it's not just believing in God, but also living fully from God. And during the series, we're looking at how God has entrusted us, that God actually wants to partner with us, not on in just an individual journey, but, but partner together. In fact, we looked at this short little scripture last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, for we are co-labors together with God. There's this idea that, that there is something larger that God has entrusted us with, that we're partnering together. It's not just you on your spiritual journey and me on my spiritual journey, and we're kind of giving each other a thumbs up, but we're also partnering together with God that he has entrusted us to represent him to the world, to discover who he is, and to make him himself known that God said, hey, you guys are it. Look around. You are it, and God wants to partner with us as a church together. And when we only look at ourselves, when we're only on our own little spiritual journey, we need to understand that self-centered faith or just this kind of individualized faith is really a caricature of faith. It may look like faith. It may seem kind of spiritual, but it is so short-sighted in what God has for us to not just believe in God, but to live for God together. And that's why we have local churches. That's why God established the local church in the New Testament as we see today. as we'll see today, but also it kind of sets the the way that we work, the way that we value. And so here at Willamette, we have these three values that you'll hear over and over again. Radical hospitality, uncommon humility, and sacrificial generosity. This isn't a statement of faith. We have those two for sure. We have a theology about what we believe about God, but then there's this co-laboring, this partnering, what God has entrusted us, how then are we going to carry this out? And so these values are beautiful. When they're lived out, these biblical values, they they bring out beauty in our world, but they're also countercultural to the self-centered nature that we have and that we're born into. This idea of just getting what we can for ourselves or holding on to what we have for ourselves or just thinking about ourselves. That's why radical hospitality, thinking about others, uncommon humility, not uncommon hostility, which we see a lot of in our world today, and then sacrificial generosity, this desire to give rather than hold on to. So during this series in the month of November, we're focusing specifically on this value of sacrificial generosity, that God has entrusted us with resources, with our life, and he says, hey, I've got a plan and purpose that I want to invite you into, to to know what it is to follow God as we're generous with what God has entrusted with us. 
And to do that today, I want to do this a little bit different. This is going to be a little bit of a different kind of message because what I want to do is I want to dedicate this message to my dad. And that's not really normal. It's not that you can or can't do it, but I want to do this specifically for my dad because my dad happens to be the most generous person that I know. And he's not just generous, but my dad taught me a lot of incredible things about generosity. In fact, it's not just dedicated to him. I decided to show you a picture of my dad. So here's my dad right here. Yay, dad. There he is. Ronald Charles Becker. Uh, And here's my mom. She's the partier of the two. Uh, But they just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. This is them out in Willamette Wine Country celebrating together. Uh, and, And again, they've just modeled incredible generosity. They also visited Willamette for one of the first times just a few weeks ago. Here's a picture of my dad and my office. We're hanging out together. And I just, I'm bringing you to this point, And I want to let you guys know this because all of us have different upbringings. All of us have different dads. All of us have different experiences. And this room is full of different perspectives, different teaching, different understanding of what it is when it comes to generosity. I happen to have a dad who decided to teach me according to the scriptures. And I sat down with him. Actually, when we were in my office, knowing that I would be teaching on this a few weeks, I said, Dad, who taught you to be generous? Was it your parents? And I, th- I thought I knew the answer, and I was right. He goes, no, my parents, my parents did not teach me anything about following Jesus when it came to money. And I said, well, how then did you decide to be generous and to trust God with your money? And he said, well, back when I was single, I was just kind of doing my own thing on my own spiritual journey. And I listened to a message that opened my eyes and I decided right then and there that I was going to trust God with my finances. And he never looked back. And maybe you have a story like that. This church is full of people who have decided to trust God with their finances. Some of you may have a dad like my dad who taught you. Others of you, you're like, Brian, I'm in church because I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to like figure out how to get to tomorrow. I don't know about this. God has a plan and purpose for us corporately. I I don't know what this is, but I, I definitely feel like I don't have enough. But regardless of who your dad is, regardless of what your experience is, regardless if you've had a good church experience or a bad church experience, and I've had both, you guys, can I just tell you real quick, don't look this up, don't Google me too much because you'll probably find this out, but you, you know, I just told you, so it's going to happen. But um, uh, my first church experience as a, as a pastor, the lead pastor um, uh, got fired for embezzlement. That was not a good first church experience. Can I get an amen from somebody? <laughs> Like he was like, no joke. Uh, I didn't say this at the nine. I'm just going to say this now. But no joke. I just had no clue what it meant to go into full-time ministry. I was in college. My wife and I were sitting at Red Robin in South Center in Seattle. And the pastor looked across at us. And he's like, "Uh, hey, do you want the job? Blah, blah, blah. Kind of an impromptu interview. And all I knew is that I I love Jesus and I love the students because I was interning there at the church. And and I'm like, well, I love the kids. I love what God's called. And he goes, good. And just so you know about pay, I just want you to know this. We take good care of our pastors. And he just looked at me and smiled. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, okay, I took the job. And the first paycheck that I got, I realized that I was going to make about $15,000 a year. 
a year. That was my first experience. I was like, oh, so this is what it means to take really good care of your pastors. Okay. It was like rent was more than half of our paycheck. It was not a great experience. We were trying to figure out how to do life. And then he ends up getting fired. And I'm like, this is not good. Maybe we should not be in ministry because I don't think we can live off of $15,000 a year. But we kept going. We kept going. And God kind of shaped us through bad experiences so that we could learn what he had for us. So regardless, if you've had bad experiences, I'm in that boat too. But I've also, because of my dad and because of others, I've leaned into and I've learned from and I've learned to trust God through the high and low. And so regardless of your experience, today what I want to do is I want to be kind of like my dad was to me. He sat me down and he said, hey, I want to teach you some things. And my dad literally pushed a pile of money across the table. I'll never forget this. I don't know if it was ones, fives, or tens, but it was probably like $100. And my dad did this for me. By the way, I'm not doing that for you today, okay? I'm, I'm not doing that for you. You're on your own. Uh, but, but my dad pushed a pile of money across. He goes, I want to teach you how to honor God with your finances. And so he began to parse out what it meant to trust God with my finances. And he goes, this is all yours, but I want to show you what to do with it. And again, my dad did that for me. Some of you are like, no way. My dad took my money. He didn't give me any money. My dad, that was drinking money for my dad if I wasn't, whatever it was. Uh, and, and because of that, I'm here today. Because of my dad, because of a good teaching that someone gave my dad, our lives changed as a family. Not because uh, God made us rich, which you'll hear about earlier, but because we understood what it was like to be in alignment with what God had for us. And so this is what I want to share with you today. So if you've never had this, I hope, I hope that you'll sit down or walk away and go, I'm glad Brian took the time to tell us. I'm glad Brian took the time to open the scriptures so that we could look at and do some inventory of what it means for us in our situation to trust God. So here's the big idea that we're looking at during this series. Everything that we have has been entrusted to us by God, and we are accountable for how and for who we leverage it. Here's the idea. We'll say this each week of the series, that that God has entrusted us, and we're accountable. God's trusting us with what he's given us. So today, we're not going to talk about generosity in a generic sense. We're not going to talk about like time, talent, and treasure. We'll do that at other days, but we're going to look at very specifically why and how God has entrusted us to give to the local church. What is it about giving to the local church? Why does God have a local church? Can't we just all be good people and try to figure out how to be generous with the world? Or is there something more detailed, more on purpose that God has for us? So if you've ever wondered why God wants us to do this, this is the Sunday for you. If you've ever wondered how God wants us to do this, this is the Sunday for you. If you've ever felt pressured. This is not the Sunday for you, okay? Because this is not a pressure Sunday at all. My hope is that you'll be like, okay, I kind of understand because no one ever taught me or no one ever showed me. And I hope that maybe I can be what somebody was for my dad and maybe change the trajectory of your life and maybe your family's life and maybe your kid's life. So we're going to start with Jesus talking about a scripture that we mentioned briefly last week, and then we're going to get into the details about what God has shown us all through the scripture. So Matthew chapter 6, we looked at this last week briefly. We're going to look at it a little bit more deeply. It says this, Jesus speaking to the people says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where the thieves break in and steal. So Jesus, don't store up stuff for you. He's not saying don't save. Some people are like, see, I'm not supposed to save. (laughs) 
uh, I'm just supposed to store up treasure. No, he's saying don't just accumulate for yourself. Do not say it's mine. I did it. I earned it. So it's for me, not uh, treasures on earth. Then he goes on in verse 20 to say this, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus knows the tension. Jesus knows that when it comes to treasure, it's connected to our heart. And I said this last week, uh, Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven because he knows the tension and the tie that it has to our heart. So he says, store up treasures in heaven. And if you think about this, you're like, what does that actually mean? Like store up treasures in heaven. Is there a direct deposit we're supposed to be doing into heaven? Is this waiting for me when I get to heaven? How does this work? Again, we're going to look at that in more detail uh, today. But the next part of the scripture, some of you have heard this many times before, but you may not be able to quote the next part, which is just as important as these first two verses. Look at what he says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I kind of read through that, I'm like, is he talking about something else right now? He goes from storing treasures in heaven and where your treasures, there your heart will be. And then it seems like he's talking about something new about eyes and darkness and light. But Jesus is connecting this uh, together. In fact, in the next verse that we'll look at in just a moment, he ties it all together. And in this middle, he's talking about our vision and our perspective that when our vision is unhealthy or when it is distorted, it results in darkness. And some of you know this because you're aging, right? As your eyes get older, this guy, all of a sudden things get darker, right? Like I'm the guy that embarrasses his wife at the restaurant because the bill comes and I'm trying to write the tip, except I can't see what it, what we paid for. Like, I'm like, I don't know the amount. And I pull out my phone and I turn on the little, the little flashlight and Jen's like, Oh God, please heal my husband. This is so embarrassing. Why? Because as your vision is distorted, everything gets darker. And Jesus just talked about treasure and heart. And he knows if your vision, your perspective is wrong, it will be distorted. The practice will be distorted. So Jesus puts it plainly in verse 24. And he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says money isn't bad. Your perspective of money can be bad. It can be tied to your heart. And if you have the wrong perspective, it is going to distort. It will bring darkness. But when you get the right view, the eyes, when the eyes are healthy, when you see this the right way, it actually brings life. It actually brings flourishing. It brings light to dark areas. And he says, don't confuse this. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus was always tying our heart to money. He was bringing up money all the time. In fact, when you read the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're reading about Jesus, in fact, if I were to ask, and I won't do this out loud because it might get awkward, but if I was like, 
What do you think of Jesus when you read the Gospels? You might be like, he loved people. He healed people. He cared for people. He was mad at the religious people. All these types of things. And all that is true, by the way. But did you also know if you read through the scriptures, it's kind of funny, but Jesus was always also taking people's stuff. Do you ever recognize this before? Like there's like a kid with five loaves and two fish and he's like, I'll take that. And they're like, oh man, that's like his lunch. He's like, I know I have need of it. And people are like, whoa, Jesus, that's like, don't bully the kid. He's like, no. I. And then another situation, he's like, hey, go tell that dude that I need his colt. The master has need of it. And they're like, hey, uh, Jesus needs this. We're gonna take it from you. In other portions of the scripture, Jesus is like, hey, give me that fish or give me that coin. He's like, take it. So one guy, he's like, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus like, oh, I got the answer for you. Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And he's like, oh, that's a hard one. And she's like, I know. Right? Like Jesus, like this is Jesus. This is the same Jesus that like cares for the children and he's the good shepherd. He's also like taking people's stuff because, because it's not the stuff. Nowhere in the Bible, do you know this? Nowhere in the Bible does it limit the amount that you should make in this world. Nowhere. It's not like, well, if you're a really good Christian, you won't make over whatever amount of money. No, go ahead, make your bread. Jesus was concerned about the perspective that we had with it. That whatever you have, if you have the right perspective, you you can be full of light, you can be on purpose, but know this, when your perspective is bad, you will begin to be more concerned about it than God. And Jesus, I want you to get this straight. And Jesus, this matters for the message today. When Jesus was saying this in Matthew chapter six, he was speaking specifically to the Jewish people the people of God, God's separate people. And as he was talking to to these people, Jesus knew that they knew the history of their people. That all the way back in the Old Testament, God had called Abraham. Abram, go out and be separate from the rest of the world. He called Abraham out. And from Abraham was Isaac and Jacob. You're going to get a whole Bible uh, 101 today, by the way. He called out Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were to be different from the rest of the world. And they were to be the people of God, to represent God to the world. And from Jacob would come 12 sons. And that's from the 12 tribes of Jacob. And Jacob's name would be changed to Israel. So when you think of Israel, we think of a city or we think of a nation, but it started with a person. And it was from Jacob becoming Israel that God's people were established. And it was a kingdom that was called out to be different from the rest of the world. And they were one of the most generous societies and cultures in the history of the world. And Jesus knew when he was talking to the people, Matthew 6, that they knew their history. They also knew that in the history of God's people, the people at times would say yes to Jesus and they would say no. They would say yes to God and they would say no to God and they would do things their own way. And Jesus was talking to people at the time that had gotten it wrong again. And so he's bringing to their attention the way it's supposed to be. But this time he's talking about the heart, not about the law. So in the Old Testament, you need to know this. When God established his people, when he established his kingdom, he was establishing a literal physical kingdom, literally the nation of Israel. When you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you read about the law. He's establishing the way that God wanted people to live 
in this nation that would stand out from all the other kingdoms of the world to display the goodness and the generosity and the love that God had for people. And so you have all these laws and God's like, I'm painting a picture for you. This is different from all the other people because you are a different people. And he would say to live righteously and to do justice and to be a haven for refugees and worship the God of heaven alone. He established this way of living for the nation of Israel and how to live along with many other things that would set them apart from the world. And in this society, this physical nation of Israel that God would establish, this would be this most generous. He would say, I want you to be generous. And he created laws that mandated that people give around 35 to 45% of their income to things outside of themselves. And I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, that's called taxes, right? Like, that's what we do. We just give away. But this was God's plan, God's purposes to expand generosity. And some people think, oh, it was 10%. It wasn't 10%. 10% went to the temple. The temple was in the middle of the city to represent priority and what mattered most. And that was to fund the temple and the ministry and the worship to God. But there was even stuff beyond that in the festivals and the different things that they would give. And again, God is saying, I want you to live different from the rest of the world. And I will show you that this is a better way. I will show you that this is the flourishing way. And you'll learn to trust me and not to put your hope in yourselves or your hope in your circumstances. I will guide you, but this way requires to trust. In fact, one example of this, of this belonging to God and prioritizing is found in Leviticus chapter 27. Here's just an example. A tithe, that's 10%. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So that 10%, that tithe, belonged to the Lord. So people didn't give it. It wasn't giving. It wasn't theirs. It belonged to the Lord. They were returning it. But again, that was only the 10% of the temple. Then there was more that God was saying, trust me, I want to show you what it's like to be sacrificially generous. But again, the people of God sometimes trusted God and other times they trusted themselves, just like you and me. Where we're like, cool, God, but I got some needs right now. Or cool God, but I just need to take matters into my own hands right now. That's what the people did. And again, if you read the Old Testament, you'll read about the prophets who come and speak the word of the Lord to the people about the heart of God because they've gone sideways. They're no longer flourishing. And God goes, come back to me. Follow me. Trust me with my way rather than your way because it's not working out well for you. In one example, God has established the, the people, the physical nation of Israel. They're doing their own thing. So Malachi, the prophet Malachi, comes to the people and says, you're doing it wrong. And he speaks for God. And we see this in Malachi chapter 3. And it says this, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And the answer is in tithes and offerings. This is this human condition that God has a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. He's saying, trust me. He's saying, this is how you'll be blessed. This is how you'll flourish. This is a better way for you. It is different from the rest of the world. This is the way. Trust me in it. And people are like, nope, we're going to hold on to what we have. We're going to keep what we have. And God's like, you're robbing me. What are we robbing the God of heaven? Doesn't he like own everything? Like, how do you rob God? Well, we're about to see is that we were robbing God of him blessing the people. Look at what he says next in verse nine. Instead, you are under a curse. 
your whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, when I first read this a long time ago, I I had these questions about curses. Like, is God literally going around zapping people? And if God is going around zapping people with a curse, is God still zapping people? Like, is God cursing me if I do something wrong or if I made a mistake when I was in college? Am I now paying the penalty because I did something? And and how does this work? And it took me some understanding and some, some real healing in my heart to, tr- to understand that God loves us and is for us. And cursing isn't God going around zapping. Cursing is this idea that God has a plan and a purpose for us. And when we follow God and when we're, we're, we're trusting God, we will flourish. He designed us and created us to worship God and to follow God. And when we do, it's a hard way. It's difficult because it requires trust. But we flourish. And any time you or I go, you know what? I'm going to do it my way. We walk away from the flourishing and we find ourselves broken. We find ourselves out of alignment. And God is saying, you are out of alignment. You will never flourish this way. I didn't create you. I, I, I'm not, I didn't create the world and create humanity to be apart from my plan. And now you are doing it your own way and you are out of alignment. And God says, I love you. I have a plan for you. And so he issues this invitation. Look at what happens. He says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. God says, hey, you can test me in this. Trust me. In fact, this is the only part of the scripture where God says to test him. See how this works. And he says, I will open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. Now, you might have heard some people take this out of context. And they think that blessing means rich. Like if you give to God, God's going to hook you up. Who needs Powerball when you got Jesus on your team? Like, let's go, God. Hook, hook me up. That is not what this is. If you ever have a pastor or you hear someone going, you know, it's all about God giving back to you as if God wants to make you rich. God's not interested in making you rich. God is interested in blessing you because he created you. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And blessing is bringing you out of alignment into that beautiful alignment that you were created for. Have any of you ever, or maybe some of you right now, have had a back out of alignment, right? Like some of you can't raise your hand. You're like, I can't because it hurts, right? Your back is out of alignment and you're hindered yourself. You're like, ah, this happened to me for a whole year of my life. Something happened. I was on vacation. I tried to pick up Eliana, put her on my shoulders and I was like, you know, not gonna happen. Something was wrong. It not only affected me, it also affected what I could do for others. I was hindered personally, and I was hindered in what I could do for others. And God is saying, I want to bless you. What is blessing? Putting us back into alignment. Whole, healed, able to contribute, able to enjoy, full of that purpose that God created. He goes, this is what I have for you. And he says, I will, I will bless you if you trust me. If you don't trust me, you will reap what you sow because it's apart from what I have planned for you. And so God is bringing to the people, remember, a physical nation of Israel. And he's saying, hey, don't do it your way anymore. Come back to me. 
So people would learn in and out. So if the Old Testament was the nation, in the New Testament, we have the church. In the Old Testament, it was a physical nation. Then Jesus comes, and instead of it just being a nation of a physical people, now Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, now it's every tribe and tongue. All nations can come to Christ. And now it's not a nation. It's the church. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can I get an amen from somebody, right? Amen. That's all of us. All of us are invited to be the people of God, to experience the blessing of God, no matter who your daddy was, no matter what your background was, no matter what nation you're from, everybody is invited into the life that God has for us because of what Christ did on the cross. And Jesus has a plan and purpose for us, but his original plan to be separate, his original plan to be different from the rest of the world, his original plan where he painted the picture through the law of what it is to live for him, that didn't end. It actually continues now. It doesn't continue through a nation. It continues through us. We are the people of God called to be different, called to flourish, called to have hope despite our circumstances, called to have peace in the midst of tragedy, called to experience, to taste and see that the Lord is good. We are the people of God. And so when Jesus dies and resurrects from the grave and now the church is established and people are kind of confused on how this works, the apostle Peter writes to the church and he reminds them that it's all of us together now, not as a physical nation, but as the people of God. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is us. And it was just like the nation of Israel, but now we are the holy nation. One version says, some of you grew up in church, you're like, it calls us a peculiar people, right? For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. No? Am I the only one? Okay. So this is, that's also, my, my dad taught me money. My mom taught me church songs. But uh, this is what it is. This, this people that are called out, and we never like the word peculiar, but the reason why one of the versions says peculiar is because we live different. We're called to look different and act different and give different and trust different. And Peter says the church is God's plan A to continue the movement of God, to declare the praises of him, to take into that right perspective out of darkness into his wonderful light. So none of us are perfect. We need Jesus. And now, instead of a nation doing this, now we have the Spirit of God that resides in us to empower us to live according to God's design. We are the church. And we have this new perspective. And then he drives home the point in verse 10. He says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we're no longer funding a nation now we're funding a movement. We're still carrying God's plans into this earth to, se to be separate, to declare praises, to show people a better way, to give people hope where there is no hope, to bring light into the darkness. This is what God has called us. We are still God's people. We are plan A to carry out the mission. So in the Old Testament, look at this. It was a nation. It was the law. They were forced. It was mandated. God's saying, I'm painting this picture for you. And it was a have to. 
And it was for some people, it was only for the Hebrew people, the Israelite people. Now in the New Testament, thanks to what Christ has done on the cross, it's the church. It's no longer the law. It's on our heart. It's not we have to, but we get to. And it's not for some people. It's for all people. This is what God has says, hey, I have this for you. And it no longer has to be mandated when you taste and see that the Lord is good, when you trust me, there should be a joy, a want to, even when it's hard. So the church is established. And in the New Testament, the church isn't just a bunch of people who happen to believe in Jesus. We see the local church established in the New Testament. God says, here's my plan to carry out my mission. And it's through the local church that gathers together on purpose to fund ministry in that area with elders and leaders and a structure and a unity of being on the same page, not just individuals doing it their way. In fact, Rick Warren puts it this way. He says this, right about now, there we go. Except for a few important instances referring to all believers throughout history, almost every time the word church is used in the Bible, it refers to a local visible congregation. The New Testament assumes membership in a local congregation. So again, why does God want us to give? He established this in the Old Testament, a type of people that would trust him, that would honor him, a nation different than all the other nations. What is God still doing? He's establishing the local church in local areas to trust him, to carry on with the work as light shines in the darkness. Plan A. And this is what's different from us just being nice, generous people to us being in the local church. And so, again, if you read the New Testament, you'll see this over and over again. For the sake of time today, I want to give you just one simple example, and then we'll wrap the message up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this is one example of how the church is now carrying on what the nation of Israel used to do. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. This has the same tone and the same intentionality from the Old Testament, but now through the local church, the church of Corinth, and Paul says, hey, this is also what the Galatians are doing. This is the setup of what each one, not rich people, not people who have a little bit, you know, more than everybody else, Everybody together is a part of the church and we are a part of something larger than ourselves and we're trusting God with it. We experience alignment through it. There's joy from it. We are experiencing impulses. I want you to give according to what's established all throughout the other scriptures. See, giving today in 2022, it's very different from what we read in the scriptures. Giving today, both in the church and out of the church, is more like this. A few S words, if you will. Uh, Sporadic, spontaneous, and sparing. For the sake of remembering this, let's just call this 3S giving. We give sporadically. We give here and there. We give spontaneously. You know, oh, when our heartstrings are pulled, okay, I'll give. And, And sparing, we give usually last. We're like, well, if I can, if I have any left over, then I'll I'll give to you. This is very different than what we see all throughout the scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 
all throughout the Bible, we see different letters, the, the, the P's, if you will. They gave with priority. They gave planned. They gave a percentage. So if that's 3S giving, let's just call this 3P giving. Different than the rest of society. Different from what people just happened to do. There was intentionality with the nation of Israel being established. There is an intentionality with the local church being established to come into alignment with what God has for us. Priority, planned, and percentage. And again, this is so different from what we see today. What we see today is usually something like this. It looks like, let's go to the next slide. Live, save, and give leftover. It's not priority. It's, it's last. It's spontaneous. It, it's sparing. It's sporadic. But when we reorder our lives according to what God has established for the church, it looks something like this. Give first, save second, live off the rest. Throughout all of scripture, you'll see this pattern over and over again. We trust God, we give first. He is our priority. We worship God. We're living for God now, not for ourselves, not leftovers. We give first, we save second, we live off the rest. And some of you might say, but Brian, if I do that, I will have to redo my budget entirely. To which I would say, yes, exactly. We are coming into alignment with what God has planned and purposed for us. There's something that God wants to show what blessing is like when we trust God rather than ourselves. Proverbs 3.9 kind of emphasizes the priority piece. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your crops. Priority, worship God, trust God. We're different from everybody else. So we live differently than everybody else. We give differently. So let's put it all together. If we give, save, live, we give first. How do we give? We give as priority. We make it planned and we get percentage. So as we wrap up, let's go back to this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to invite the band to come up here. About the collection of the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. This is the idea of priority. First day of the week. The church gathered thousands of years ago on Sunday, first day of the week. It doesn't mean you have to gather on Sunday, but it was intentional. And when you do, you came with a plan. Come prepared to give each one of you. Now, Honestly, thank God uh, that we have online giving these days because I never remember anything when it comes to Sunday mornings. But this was the idea of like, we're intentionally going to go to church. We're intentionally coming to give. We are intentionally putting God first in our life. It's a priority. It's planned. And it's a percentage. Keeping in line with your income. It's a heart issue, yes. But it's a portion of your life. And it's a portion in keeping with your income. And friends, this is what my dad taught me when he sat me down. And I was like, ugh, and I was dealing with the tensions. And as Jen and I tried to teach our girls, they are dealing with the tensions. And as an adult, with all the needs in the world, have you ever felt like you have all the needs in the world? Someone asked me like, hey, Brian, how much do you think you would need to be like, good? I'm like, $3 million. <laughs> and, and really, like, I think that's, my actual answer. I think if I had three million, you know, because the stock market, and you know, you got to, and you know, I want to pass them along, and you know, like how in the world those tensions will always be there. But my dad decided when he was single, 
before I even met my mom. And my mom was like, whoa, we're doing this? My dad's like, yes, I want to get this right early on. And he helped Jen and I get it right early on. So we trust God with our finances. We give a minimum of 10% to our local church as God established it. Whether I'm a pastor or not, that has nothing to do with it. Beyond that, we give more. Beyond that, we give to other organizations that are wonderful, like Africa New Life. We sponsor kids, Bible projects, organizations doing amazing things. Why? Because we're trusting God. We're we're following God. And there are still a million, there's $3 million worth of needs in my life, right? Right? But there's no way, there's no way that we are going to compromise this in order to get something that even if I get a little bit more, I still won't have enough, ever. And so we've decided to trust God with our lives. And it's my hope that you would prioritize, you would plan, you'd give a percentage. Some of you from Willamette that have been here longer than me, you remember revision back in the day? And there was this quote from Dallas Willard. That's where they got the word revision from. And I love, I love this quote that's for you and me about what does it mean to follow Jesus? This is what Dallas Willard said. We need to clarify in our minds what discipleship is. He says, my definition, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. And he continues, a disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. I'm so thankful that a disciple is not someone who has everything under control. Can I get an amen from somebody? I'm so thankful that it's not just like all the people with all the head knowledge. There are people with all the head knowledge in the world, their hearts are far from God. Jesus came to disrupt that religious way of thinking, the Pharisees. It's just simply people who don't have things under control, who don't know everything, but are constantly revising their affairs, saying, God, what does it mean for me to live for you today? What does it mean for me to continue to trust you. I want to live in the way. I want my back in alignment at the age of 46. And I have to make some decisions at 46 that were different at 36 and 26. But I want to constantly revise my affairs to align myself with the ways of God. So here's what we're doing for these four weeks. This is just kind of a challenge, a way to think. For the next two months, choose a percentage of your income. You just choose it. Plan to give it away as soon as you get paid. Go, God, I'm going to trust you. This is that. I'm going to take a step towards the line. Brian, it's not 10%. Brian, I don't know if I can do it. Brian, I, I, I get it. Just start. Some of you have started and then you stopped or you started and you didn't progressively continue to trust. Revise your affairs. Let's, let's continue to do this. But the second part about this challenge is just as important as the first. Pay attention to the internal tension and or joy this creates. Usually when I preach a message like this, there's two types of people. First type of person is like, ay, 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 ay. The second type of person has already experienced this and the tension is there because we always have needs, but we're like, it's a joy to give. I, I, it's, it's a no-brainer. There's no, no way I won't. There's a joy. There's a taste and see that the Lord is good. I understand a straight back. I understand trusting God this way rather than my own way. 
Listen closely to the conversations that you have in your mind. God is interested in your heart. He knows it's tied to your treasure. But he knows this too, that from the earliest days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has invited people to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And it includes their finances. It includes all of who they are because God is trying to do something bigger and better, bringing light into darkness. So when you give to Willamette, you give through Willamette. We spend thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year supporting missionaries, giving to Young Life, giving to Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We continually do ministry here. We believe that there needs to be a great church in this community in this day and hour and we'll never apologize for it because we see the heart of God in the scriptures and we want to live it out in the here and now. Let's be a church. What do we do? We give, we save, and we live. And how do we give as priority and planned and percentage? We are responding to what God has done for us. We take communion, friends, reminding ourselves of what God has done for us. If we can get the right perspective, if we can see clearly the light shines, when we realize what God has done for us, how he has paved a way for us, we take communion and we remind ourselves that Jesus died so that we could all be invited into this kind of a life, away from scarcity and greed and fear into the way God designed us to be. So let's take communion. Would you grab your... um, elements that you walked in with today. We're going to sing another worship song in just a moment, but before we do, would you just hold the element in your hand? Would you just pause? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He so longs for you to no longer be out of alignment. He so longs for you to be in relationship with him. He knew that you couldn't give your way to God. You couldn't earn your way to God. You couldn't follow the rules enough. We are too broken. And so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to pay the penalty so that we could have access to God. The generosity of God, his great love for us should compel us to say yes and amen to the plans and purposes that he has for us. If you would peel back that first layer, it reveals the bread. Jesus gathered his disciples around and he says, every time that you gather, do this in remembrance of me, this This bread represents my body broken for you. Jesus came to endure pain, to identify with your pain, but to give you a way to be healed and whole in an eternal life with him. Let's thank God for his sacrifice and partake of the bread. We peel back that second layer that reveals the juice. Again, Before his crucifixion, Jesus passed this wine amongst his followers. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. The cup represents my blood shed for you. 
no matter who you are, no matter what family line you come from, no matter how many mistakes you've made or what shame you're carrying, Jesus has forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. If you would only receive his grace, put your faith in him. God, God, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust you to forgive me. I'm gonna trust you to save me. I'm gonna trust that your way is the right way. I put my faith in you. He is faithful to forgive us of all of our sin. Let's partake of the juice together. Father, we thank you for your love and your generosity. We thank you for teaching us to model after you what you've invited us into. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be full of the life that you designed us to have. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to sing one final song. It's a little late in the day, but we also started service late, if you didn't notice that. Did you notice that? So it's actually not my long sermon that puts us late. I want us to just take time to sing. This song is about the goodness of God coming to establish his goodness through the church, through the shed blood of Jesus. So let's stand, let's sing one final song, and we'll dismiss when the song is over.